Okay, listeners, before you change the channel, because you don't hear our host, Rick Garcia, he's here. My name is Stephanie Graves, and welcome to The Idea People. Okay, the podcast set up downtown. We got motion. What's the idea, people? The conversation's open. The Andrews Group, the firm. Yeah, we here now. Let's talk about great ideas. Have a sit down. Welcome to the podcast. The idea people. Welcome to the idea people of the Andrews Group. My name is Rick Garcia. The, the show has not been hijacked. We planned this ahead of time, folks. Today's episode promises to be nothing short of extraordinary as we welcome the uh, one and only Stephanie Graves, CEO of Leandra's Group. Thank you, Rick. She's helping me co-host the show. Why is Stephanie joining us, you ask? Well, with her unmatched leadership prowess and ability to navigate through the corporate jungle, who better to tackle today's topic? Fighting the world's fight in a world gone mad. A conversation about philosophy in the modern age. That and the fact that she owns the company. <laughs> we are uh, set to blend Stephanie's strategic savvy with uh, my thought-provoking discussion, ensuring our journey through modern philosophy is not just enlightening, but also peppered with humor. Because let's face it, in a world gone slightly mad, a little laughter is just what the philosopher ordered. So tune in and brace yourselves for an episode that's as thought-provoking as it is entertaining. Who wrote that, by the way? Uh, I might have had a little hand in you that. Might Thank have had you, a Rick. Little, little hand in it. Our guest today, David White. David is a Rhodes Scholar and a Truman Scholar, and a graduate of Stanford Law uh, Law School and Oxford University. Apparently, you weren't in school long enough. You just had to keep going, right? So anytime I could find a place to be a student, I was there. And uh, David's also an executive coach for C-suite executives on building a legacy to drive positive and transformative change. Also the chair of the Federal Reserve Bank and on the L.A. Mayor's Fund board alongside Stephanie, among many other things. Is, by the way, is that how the two of you met? It exactly was. But welcome, David. I am, wanted you on the show for a long time, and I'm so glad you're here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, so we're going to jump right into it. Like We want to find out what is the meaning of life. <laughs> An easy question it. for That's the Rhodes right. Scholar. Yes. So I, as you know, I did the uh, conversation about this and the meaning of life. It's a little bit of a fun question, but also if you go through how we do think about meaning, maybe not the meaning of life, but the meaning of life to us, the meaning of our life. And there have been standard answers when people play around with this and when philosophers have. And so you can look at the standards of um, love, happiness, uh, worldly success and power, uh, pleasure, etc. So there's a line of thinking there. And then there's certainly a line of thinking that comes out of religions. Uh, enlightenment. To be awake is one tradition. To surrender captures a lot of what happens in modern theology now as people think about surrendering to a higher power. The name of the higher power may be different, Jehovah, Yahweh, <clears throat> etc. But that has meaning for people in terms of why am I here? Why are we here? And then there's indigenous populations where they connected to their ancestors, et cetera. But when I talk about it, I want to I, – I had to go through a process when I was in Oxford because I was confused about my own path. 
and how to actually connect spiritually, but how to be a virtuous person um, as I walk through the world. And Oxford, it turns out, is an Aristotelian institution. And so I was inundated with studying about Aristotle. And so Aristotle has this term, eudaimonia. And sometimes it's translated erroneously as in happiness. Other times it can be translated into the good life. But for me, there's an aspect of flourishing that is in there. It's a flourishing life. And for Aristotle, virtue was really an activity. And so you have to have action in it. It's, a, it's to pursue a flourishing life. And there's a lot that goes along with it that um, you, know, you may ask me questions about, but that's, that's the meaning for me. When you're at Oxford, do you just every day talk about Aristotle and Plato? And <laughs> how does that work out there? So it's a little different now. It's a little more rigorous uh, now than it was then. People think that, you know, you go to Oxford, it's going to be rigorous. But for many roads coming out of America, and there were 32, and I think there still are 32 that come out of uh, the States each year, um, it's two to three years of being in an international setting where you're around people, seemingly everybody, smarter than you, more talented than you, the way I thought about it, they were better looking than me. They were better athletes than me. You're just surrounded by superlative human beings. And so we did, we debated a lot, but we would debate everything. We would debate, you know, the size of the rock and whether or not plants actually get their light from sunlight. We would just debate everything. So it was wonderful, intellectually challenging. And the goal was to actually seek, seek truth may be a little lofty, but it was, it's to, find real answers to get beyond BS and to actually force the rigorous thinking that gives you some insights, not just to the point that you're debating, but to a broader set of issues that we'll be tackling as we were coming into the world. You know, for me in my philosophy classes in college, I, uh, I, I, and maybe this is what led to a career in journalism. I, I love the idea of questioning uh, not always taking uh, your first answer as the correct answer. But I always wondered about philosophy. Do we ever find the answer? There are lots of questions. You debate like crazy. Do we ever get to the answer? I don't think so. I think every generation of philosophers comes around. They say, well, the last folks, they were all right, but they were limited. Here's the real answer. We, we, all, we all say that. And I think that's the, that's the point is that we're trying to elevate all the time. You, each day you wake up and say, you know, today I have the opportunity to be better than I was yesterday. How can I do that? And I think that's what philosophers do. In your presentation that I saw, you talked about at the end of your life, not the morbid end of your life, but at the end of your life, what do you want to say you've accomplished or who you want to be? And you took us down this story about maybe talk about, about um, the accident you had. And just we're not here. We don't know when our last day is. I did. I was. <clears throat> this happened uh, just a couple of months ago. I was driving down Highland, which is a big street here in Los Angeles, and I just dropped my daughter off at school. And I was coming back, and I had my dog in the the car. That's got to be a very typical L.A. statement. Yes, I had my dog in my car. <laughs> I'm driving down. Coffee in my hand. Um, I didn't actually have coffee in my hand, but. Without, I, I didn't even see the car that that skipped over two lanes to come into my lane. 
And I think the young man who did it didn't see me. I think I was coming past a car. He was trying to really quickly dart in front of that car, hit me, and um, I was going maybe 35, 40 miles an hour, so not that fast. But when he hit me, I went straight into a light, uh, a light post. And all I, f- I felt the, the side... Um, uh, not balloon, the airbag. the airbag hit, and then the front airbag hit. My dog went flying out the um, out the open window. Um, thankfully, the window was open. And it was so sudden. <laughs> it just sort of reminded me, yeah, any day can be your last. So you really have to appreciate the moments. But the Well, first underlying- let's say your dog was okay, and now you can go The on. dog was okay, <laughs> I was okay, and the young man um, and his girlfriend who were in the car, they were okay. So um, no, uh, it's a miracle. Um, no major casualties, because the, the light post actually fell over. Like, that's how hard I hit it. Um, so the, the, the setup in the talk, though, was about when you think about Again, your own morality, your meaning for you, one device is to think about it at the end of your life. Assume that you're on your bed and you're surrounded by loved ones and they're talking to you and talking about you. What are they saying? What are they saying about your contribution during your time here? How did you go about contributing to the garden, that the little patch of garden that you get? What did you do? And that is a good way of thinking about, well, what do I want them to say? Well, then what am I doing to lead to that conversation when I'm at the end of my life? David White is our guest on the Idea People at Lee Andrews Group. David is an executive coach, a Rhodes Scholar. We're discussing how to take on the world in a better way. Why do uh, events such as accidents, uh, illness, why does it take something like that to get us to really sit down and, and analyze where we are in our lives? Yeah, hopefully it doesn't. Hopefully, um, that's just, kind of what you're trying to convey to people: that why do we need to wait for an experience to, it's, to figure exactly, out the why? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it is a way for people who who see the question is too big um, to really tackle. It's a way for them to think about. Oh, okay. I, 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 I mean, I want to think about my death, but I can think about how I want people to talk about me. Um, uh, another device that I've used is um, how do you teach your children? How do you want your children to act when they become adults? That's also another device um, to figure out how you want to react because we often give better advice when we're thinking about the people who we love. But in this instance, we don't want to wait until uh, the accident. We want to, I believe, we should be doing this well before that. So also you talk about that we should be, it's important to be rooted in our why. Yes. So maybe explain a little bit about that. So again, the title, which was built for a college campus, The World Gone Mad. Um, But another way of thinking about that is how do you be an effective decision maker? How do you have morality um, in a world that is uncertain? We are unmoored. Um, untethered at this time with so many of the institutions and the the 
uh, beliefs that we took for granted when we were growing up. I'm in my mid-50s, and so I grew up in the 70s and the 80s. I came into political consciousness, and it's just so different now. And it's easy to just feel, um, what I said, untethered, just out there. And when you don't feel rooted, so many of us can just grab on to anything that feels certain. We're just glad that somebody out there is telling us this is the way to view the world. This is the way to walk through the world. And we'll take it even if it's not what we truly believe. And even if after giving deep thought, we would disagree with it. And I think that's what's happening right now. And so finding our why, I need to understand why I am here and what I believe I am meant to do each day and over the course of my life. And then I need to be rooted in that. And being rooted in that means every day I want to wake up every, with the conscious belief that I'm responsible for my actions. I'm responsible for how I walk in through the world. I'm responsible for my why and why I'm here. And once we gain insight into that question and how we respond to it and then take responsibility for being retethered to that why most of us become better people and the world needs that in this moment how do you take those uh, ideas uh, and then apply that to the world of business how do i take that to my job with me well certainly as a decision maker um, as a business leader your why oftentimes has a broader impact and has a real impact on others. So that's an even greater level of responsibility of understanding um, why you're here, who you are, how your leadership should be deployed. But also there's a spotlight on you when you're a business leader. There are people who look to you for direction and guidance and whether we like it or not for morality. Uh, and so that position of responsibility should be taken very seriously. And it doesn't mean that you, we have to wake up every day and attempt to be Yoda, right? It, it doesn't mean that we have to try to be a philosopher. It just means that we need to be conscious about the why and conscious about the impact and doing our part to contribute positively to those around us and to the decisions that we make, to the communities that are affected by our business, to the business itself. And I think uh, that leads to a more certain world and it leads to a world that is less mad and, um, and that's a world that I would prefer to live in. So that it, defining effective leadership. I'm, well, first off, I think my IQ score is going way up just listening to uh, this podcast. So thank you. Um, but effective leadership. And I do want to say just as a woman CEO going into this, I didn't go into it for the power where I, the leadership I feel is more about doing better and bringing people up with you and leading them that way, and then taking on clients that actually have meaning at a certain point, once you can afford to do that. Right. Um, but I think where a lot of leaders go wrong is trying to gain the power. 
Yes. I mean, think about the history of Homo sapiens. We've been trying to grab power for a long time. So there's something natural about that. And it seems to me that acknowledging that and recognizing that is the first step to learning how to contain it and to use it in a positive way. Again, the goal that we have becomes important. So if the goal is we want human beings to flourish, we're looking for the world to be a better place. Now, not everybody has that goal, even after thinking about it. But um, part of my goal is to have more people thinking in that way. If that is a goal, well, then you've got the basics of a business. If you're running a business, you do have P&L. So you got to have net income. Got it. But in so doing, how are you treating your people? Is there a baseline that say, hey, my goal is to see you be at your best while you are helping us to um, make money and to um, create and and uh, and have value um, to increase value of the business. If that is the case, then almost certainly becomes a better work environment where people are coming in and they feel not just like a widget, not just like a, a unit of labor, but as someone who can contribute and who is valued for who they are. Well, now you can build policies around that to help uplift people while they're doing good work for you. It's just a better way of going about it. And it's really, it can be really hard. So it requires work and it requires vision. And then if you apply that same principle, thinking not just about your employees, but also about your your um, business partners, your vendors, the community in which you rest, well, now you're building a culture that hopefully leads to more value for your business, but also more value for your community. I mean, this is not rocket science. And we are watching communities around us oftentimes crumble and become uh, more... Um, focus on just the the me, 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 as opposed to the we and the us. And I, I think we see the effects of this, and it's almost always negative, um, and we can do better. You're listening to the Idea People at Lee Andrews Group. David White is our guest. David is a Rhodes and Truman Scholar. Can I just ask, wait, what? how do you become a Rhodes Scholar? Well, there's a secret test, right? There's a handshake, and you have to be invited. <laughs> yeah, um, you you have a lot of people looking out for you. So I, I mean, I can talk about my path very quickly, which is take your time. Um, I, I, the president of my college, I went to a small liberal arts college in um, in Iowa, Grinnell College in Grinnell, Iowa, and just. A fabulous, wonderful school with this terrific history. And I did not want to go there. I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Kansas City. I was going to get out of the Midwest. You're crazy. I'm not going to a school in Iowa. I'm not going to a school called Grinnell. I can barely pronounce it. And my best friend in high school, his parents were educators. And they said, why don't you just go up there with them? And I went up and I had a lot of attitude. And I walked into the uh, to the admissions office and they had arranged an interview for me. And I went in in my sweats and I was like, whatever, whatever. And of course I was exactly the kind of personality they were looking for. And then they offered more financial aid than any of the other institutions that I went to. So I decided, yeah, it's less pressure on my parents, less pressure on me. I'll just go to Grinnell. 
And while I was there, the president of the school had been a Rhodes Scholar. And so he said, I think it was after my second year, he came up to me and uh, he said, you know, if you pick your grades up a little bit, you could actually apply for a Rhodes. And it opened a vista to me, just, just that one statement. And, uh, and so I did, I, my grades were, my grades were tolerably well. I mean, I don't think I could get into college now, just the, the standards are so high, but I, I'm sure that I was on the lower, I was probably about a three, five, three, seven, something like that. It's not bad, but it's not a four, two or whatever, um, the gunners do these days. But, um, when I went into the first interview, um, and you have to go through the school interview because you're representing the school. The school has to put forth your name. And I was in a political philosophy class. And our professor, a guy named Ira Strauber, who just scared the bejesus out of everybody, was um, teaching Plato at the time. And apparently I, I was all about Plato when I came out of there. And I was close to a history professor who was on the committee. And he came out and he said, what the hell? are they teaching you in this class? Would you shut up about Plato? My gosh. It's, I mean, I really blew it. I walked out. I told my girlfriend, I, I, th I think I blew the interview. I, but because it was a small school, they put me forward anyway, right? So that's people looking out for you. They believed in my potential. They put me forward. And I went to the first, the state interview. So the Rhodes has a state interview and then two people come out of the state and then they go to the region. And at least at that time, I think it's still the same, but there were eight regions and four people make it out of each region. So I went to my first um, uh, interview and they asked me some question I could not think of the answer. And so I said, is it okay if I, if I think about that while I'm answering other questions and then come back to it at the end, end of the interview? And uh, the chairwoman said, uh, yes, that's okay. And so we get to the end of the interview and she says, Mr. White, your time is up. And I say, oh, I don't want you to think that I forgot about uh, the question. And she said, Mr. White, your time is up. Thank you. And I walked out and I was like, damn, I blew it again. Look at that. I kind of walked in. There. But they gave me a second interview, which they do every once in a while when they want to continue evaluating someone. And the question that they asked was, all right, so you say that you're into philosophy and politics. So I want you to draw the thread to ancient Greece to modern day Europe and to the fall of the Berlin Wall, because this was in the late 80s. Can you do that? And for whatever reason, I was like, that is my question. I am <laughs> off to the races. So I, I answered that. And so then I went on. Um, but you go through that process. So yeah. to, to me, I don't know if, if that now. question was posed to me, I would have just run out the door, yeah. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Probably should have. Uh, oh my gosh! So when you graduate Oxford, instead of a diploma, do they give you a crown or what? What happens? <laughs> you're, you're knighted. So you want to know what's really funny? So it, um, I think it's a little different. It's a little more rigorous now. You you actually have to carry forth the studies that you do undergraduate work. We had options of doing anything, and so I really I wanted to study philosophy. I, did, I hadn't actually studied that much, and I wanted to study philosophy and economics. And they actually said you don't have enough economics in your background to do philosophy and economics, which I thought was absurd. Isn't this a bachelor's degree? And by the way, why do you give a crap what, what I'm studying? But they said philosophy and politics. So I 
-hmm. went in and I, um, I did the degree. I did a thesis. My thesis was on Nigerian politics. Of course. And then I, and I studied a bunch of Aristotle, right? And uh, I came out and I come out with a bachelor's. But at that time, if you paid, I think it was like a hundred quid two years after graduation, they would turn it into a master's oh. or something. I thought that's insane. I didn't earn a master's. I'm not doing that. It's a second bachelor's, right? I mean, nobody in America cares. They just care about the Rhodes Scholarship. They don't care what you actually come back with. Bill Clinton, Bill Bradley, Senator Bradley, which some people of a certain age will remember him. I don't even think they got degrees. Like, I think Bill Bradley was down in Italy playing basketball the whole time before he went to the NBA, right? Nobody cares. And for that reason, it's a beautiful scholarship. They give you just enough money where at that time, because you're broke all the time, that you feel, wow, I can go travel. So you're traveling around the world. You're meeting all these interesting people. And nobody back in the States really cares what the result is. So it was great. I was just going to bring with the getting back to the business part of it is um, you, you kind of touched on uh, how important it is to make sure everybody's successful and succeeds. So let me throw out an example to you. I'm a, I'm a manager who's been promoted. Maybe I haven't been in the business a long time, but I've earned this promotion. Now I'm managing people. I got this promotion, at least in my eyes, because of all these great ideas I have and all of these ways I've learned how to do things. And now I've got people that I'm leading. Uh, at what point, how, how do we figure out that we need to kind of put aside our egos, um, uh, do it my way or the highway, as opposed to how can we participate as a team? Yeah, such a great question. And egoless management is a really uh, difficult uh, trick to master, but in my view, really important. And it doesn't mean that you don't have an ego. It's your approach to managing. So um, one way of thinking about it is you, you start with your strategic goal. And first of all, having great ideas doesn't necessarily mean that you are a master of strategy. So take seriously, let's make sure that we have clarity about our goals. And let's make sure not that I have clarity to then dictate to the rest of you, but that we have clarity. That typically involves process. And if it's a good process, it's an empowering process because people know when they get up in the morning, I know what I need to do to help the team get to the goal. But the leader, the new manager, hopefully sees him or herself at the head of the team we have to get to the goal. And so it always seems to me that as a leader, I'm only as good as the team is. I owe everything to the team. And if the allocation of, of task and duties is done correctly, the last thing that I want is to be responsible for doing everything. I, I want to dole as much of that out as possible to really good people who are receiving everything that they need so that they can be great at what they do. Because then my job becomes what I think a leader's true job almost always should be, which is my job is to be the keeper of the focus. And if I'm the keeper of the focus for the team and the team is empowered and enabled to do excellent work, well, we're going to go much further than if I alone am trying to accomplish everything. And that means the team is going to be better. And that means I'm going to be seen as a greater leader. And so that all sort of um, turns into a virtuous cycle. And I think just folding back in philosophy here with having 
knowing your why and what is your what does it mean have a flourishing life? So I'm going to give a, a concise business answer, and then if if you allow me, I'm going to give a slightly deeper philosophical answer to that. So on a business level, a flourishing life to me means um, having having a full life. So contributions to um, civic life, business life, family life, community, uh, having friends and family. It's having the the right set of each of those components for you so that your life is full. You have love and, and, and food and you're dealing with the ups and downs of life and, um, and all the pleasures of it and the pain um, that you're deeply engaged in it. So I think I would just leave it at that. Flourishing means it's the full vitality of being a human being and you, you're squeezing as much juice out of that as possible. On a slightly more philosophical level, there is, uh, you know, you can think of a philosophy, a moral philosophy largely in, in two buckets. One is sort of looking for consequences. So utilitarianism is a good example of that, which is, you know, to maximize the good, maximize the good for the most amount of people. And then there's a rules-based um, bucket, which is we don't worry about the consequences. We worry about doing the right thing. So you got to have the right rules in place. And if you think about religion, modern religions and, and philosophical beliefs, lots of times you will hear elements of people saying, I want to do good for people and the other people saying, I need to be right with God or I need to be right with the rules. And a flourishing life is a mixture, I think, of the rules and the consequences. And for me, I, I literally built a couple of rules that I knew I could adhere to. So one is no lying. So lying is a sin in my moral system. And abandoning loved ones your community, that's a sin. You have to, you know, being as supportive as possible and really engaging in the community. And then the consequences deal with a vision of humanity as needing to flourish. So the flourishing of human life, not just my own flourishing, but the flourishing of those around me in that's community. So right. And so putting those two together in a way that did it for me. David White is our guest. He's an executive coach. Uh, he's with us on the Idea People at Lee Andrews Group. I'm Rick Garcia. Our uh, Lee Andrews Group CEO, Stephanie Graves, is uh, here um, <clears throat> helping me with this project because it's such a, a difficult egg to crack. Um, we talk about a, a mad, mad world. You know, if you look over time, people will say, ah, we've had our moments all throughout history, right? And so my question for you, it's really two-part, is are we any madder than usual over the history of time? Uh, uh, and how do we how do we make things not so mad? I, I know I'm putting all this on you, and hopefully you're the guy to figure it out. <laughs> exactly. Um, I've got I've got a voice, so we'll, let's add the voice. Um, I think we are experiencing something that's a little different than what we experienced in the past, because uh, in the past there was a stronger sense of. Uh, the commons of, of the the common good, the public good. The one one thing that does feel different right now is an unwillingness to 
base our debates and our differences on a common set of facts. Increasingly, we are willing to bypass facts and to start from the position that our belief system is priority and the facts need to bend to the belief system. So I was in a conversation with um, two young people two weeks ago, and we were talking about the Middle East, and they had very strong opinions about it. And in pointing out context and saying, okay, so I hear you, but what would you, what would you do if, what do you do with this set of facts about the history of Israel? So I lay something out. They didn't want to hear it. Okay. You don't want to hear the facts. I got it. Well, for a moment, assume that, that you did believe this. Would that change your belief? And the answer was no. Like they really did not want to hear anything that pushed them outside of the belief system itself. And certainly when you turn on cable news or when you turn on the um, uh, whatever social media it is that people follow, it's the same thing. And if I were to ask anyone, I could ask the two of you, you know, you may watch Fox News, you may watch MSNBC. If you do, whichever one it is that you watch, do you watch the other one? Um, most people, the answer would be no. And by the way, I watch one, and every time I try to watch the other, I want to turn it off because it sounds like craziness to me, right? It sounds nonsense. But if that's the end of my investigation, then I'm just contributing to the same dynamic, and that's no good. So we have to find a way to actually bridge that enough to get back to a place where we can say, all right, there are some common facts or some scientific facts. We just went through COVID where, you know, um, uh, where people really had a disagreement on whether or not science matters. I think that's within families, by the way. I I mean, within families. I mean, that, that, I see friends who are friends, lifelong friends now who are no longer friends because of conversations like these. That's right. And your second question, the the first one was, is it different? And tell me again the second one. Well, to how to solve it. That's the hard one. (laughs) So, how can we go back to getting out of our echo chambers then and, uh, and and get to a point where we want to hear what the other side has to say and actually listen. Maybe not want to hear it, but actually right. listen to it. So one, I don't think we're going back, right? So this is now what to do now that we're at this situation. I, I don't think that we go back to whatever our memories were of the times when things were better or things were good. Um, at least that's not the way that I think about it. I do think that, um, that uh, holding ourselves accountable for the way that we want to walk through the world is the starting point. Meaning, um, I'm not necessarily always a nice guy. I'm not necessarily always an effective leader or an effective decision maker. I'm not trying to be perfect, but I am responsible for holding myself accountable to my values. For me, that is the flourishing of, of human life. And, and, I, I'm not so invested in trying to change your perspective. I want to make sure that I'm hearing, that I'm listening, and I, I get the right to put my truth out there. 
but I am invested in embodying the listening aspect and embodying the change that I want. So if I want people to listen to each other, if I want people to actually uh, bring their arguments to a common set of facts, then even if it means I'm going to lose the debate, I need to embody that and to showcase that. So I think the holding of ourselves accountable to how we're going to walk through the world um, is the trick. And I've decided when I give speeches and and um, when I'm involved in conversations, I'm truly, I'm no longer trying to convince somebody. I'm trying to find like-minded people who are disposed to, um, to a similar desire, to wanting to get to a place where people can talk with one another. I'm now focused on trying to show a path, one path, not the path, one path of getting to that place. And I'd like to do that um, with certainty. I love debating and all of that, but I'm not here trying to convince you and I'm not, and I am going to be responsible for hearing um, you and for listening to you. And so the holding of ourselves accountable for those types of activities, I think that's the starting point. Wow. Well, I can only say I'm so glad I got to meet you and being on the board of the LA Mayor's Fund with you. You're, I, I mean, way. I feel like I've had a master class in philosophy. Um, I think if we start hearing our listeners start reciting Aristotle and Plato, <laughs> we know where it's come from now. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I mean, this has been so wonderful, David. I really appreciate you being here. Well, I, I love all the contributions that you give, and they are many, to uh, the Mayor's Fund. And uh, it's really great uh, deepening a relationship with you, Stephanie. So thank you. We want to let our listeners know that if they want more information on David's executive coaching or strategic consulting firm, it's 3CG Ventures. You can visit 3CGVentures.com. Yes. Right. That's for 3.0 Consulting Group, 3CG. And for more idea or information rather on the idea people, you can go to LeeAndersGroup.com. And uh, Stephanie... So much fun. Thanks for letting me join you. I, I am so glad. I, I mean, this has just been, I just have one last question. Yes. So you are chair of the Federal Reserve Bank. Of San Francisco. Of San Francisco. Yes. So is there like an ATM you can pull up to? Do you actually put money into it or what? Or, no, I'm just kidding. But I mean, that's such a prestigious honor. So, I mean, you have so many accolades. Uh, we could go on as, and talk about banking and financing, but we don't have time today. We'll do that next time. Okay. So, thanks for That'd much, be great. Stephanie. In the meantime, let's uh, all be rooted in our why. Okay, the podcast set up downtown. We got motion. What's the idea? People, the conversation's open. The Andrews Group, the firm. Yeah, we here now. Let's talk about great ideas. Have a sit down. We on a mission. You get the idea, people. Glad you pulled up. How you doing? Nice to meet you.